Hello, this is Coffee Dave once again. We're beginning a new novella today, a five-parter, and it's a comedy. Actually, the purest comedy that you'll find in this collection. And lo and behold, no fantasy elements either. The main characters who basically have chapters in alteration are Bitsy Blaney, Byron Bannister, Albert Coffin, and a girl who looks exactly like Louise Brooks. We begin only small actors. One, Bitsy. Seymour suggested it as a schedule filler when the other awards shows were months away. It was his brainchild, and nobody else initially was willing to sign on. Well, that gave him the opportunity to develop it without interference and get SAG, AFTRA, and Equity interested. He had defined the criteria using the Robert Duvall example. To Kill a Mockingbird. Boo Radley. Less than 100 words and no more than five minutes of screen time. He presented his idea to his helpmeet as she frisked him for muffin tops and French crullers in the hallway of their homes. He removed his jacket and she put a friendly hand down his pants. As he passed muster and hadn't tried to smuggle in a Krispy Kreme, she kissed him and asked if he had any design ideas. He suggested that she give it some thought as she had a professional's visual sense. Indeed, Bitsy had an acute eye. When she had him strip to the buff on Saturday evenings, she could tell whether he had gained as little as eight ounces. If in the preceding week he maintained his fighting trim, Seymour scored in the marital bed, where his eyes crossed and steam came out of his ears. She had been named Elizabeth. Torn between Kathleen and Deirdre for their little Colleen, her ma saw baby's eyes, and that was that. The family began by calling her Beth at home, and later Betts, and as she was small for her age and lagged her schoolmate's growth, they called her Bits, and then Bitsy, and it stuck. She was Bitsy then, and she was Bitsy now, and remained barely making five feet while each succeeding generation did seem taller than the last. Bitsy was intrigued, and as Seymour gently snored, she entered her atelier, and taking a sketch pad and charcoal pencil, she smudged out several possible designs. By 2 a.m. she had something. Rising from a mahogany base, an alabaster hand holding a loose-leaf script, one page dog-eared, on the page in gold leaf, three lines outlined, as if by magic marker. She returned to snoozing Seymour, and despite her excitement, did not wake him. Instead, she propped up the pan on a bedside chair so he would see it when he rose and slid on his glasses. She rewarded herself with a hot bath, crawled into bed, and slipping a tired arm around him, slipped into satisfied slumber. 2. 
Byron. Byron Bannister was born a polyp, or rather he was born Peter Polypopolis. His father, hastily emigrating to Manchester and away from a fray in Crete, being on the wrong side of a spat, could turn one into an ex-man in the old-fashioned sense, with the famous Cretan dagger inserted into someplace soft. Mr. Polypopolis, or Pollen, found his British patrons had difficulty with his name, so he did shorten it in a rather unfortunate manner. When Peter entered Harriston on the strength of good grades and a dad whose several successful fish-and-chips joints could foot the tuition, he found in the American parlance he had two strikes against him. One, the surname of Polyp, and two, a father whose profession was to batter and fry haddock place and cod. If he had some skill in sport, it might have mitigated his punishment, but the boy was a gangly, poorly coordinated lad whose aquiline nose was years in advance of the rest of his face. The usual schoolyard taunt was to advise Peter to set aside his cricket bat and use his nose when he stood before the wicket. At 13, he did that inadvertently, receiving a facial mashing requiring considerable reconstructive surgery. When the swelling subsided and bruising abated, he found himself the recipient of admiring glances from some of the students and a few of the masters. Peter Pollop at first did not understand his new popularity, but he was not a stupid lad and learned how to use his new looks to his advantage. When he graduated, he signed his picture, Polymorphously Perverse Peter Polyp. He went on to university and, much to his father's chagrin, majored in fine arts, but spent most of his time in theatrical productions, weaving his way through ranks of admirers, both male and female. He met Dame Claire de Boeuf, a native of Jersey, uh, the Channel Island, not the Garden State when he maneuvered to be her guide during the week that said lady was visiting lecturer. In sprightly middle age, she had a couple of Oliviers, a supporting actor, Oscar, and a Palme d'Or. He assisted by walking her brace of Scotties, Henry Irving and Ellen Terry. Then she asked him to entertain Pussy. The canines were standoffish, but... Pussy seemed pleased with Peter's performance, and as there is nothing like a dame, when she asked him if he would enter her employ post-graduation, he assented. She stipulated that he change his name to something a bit more euphonious, thus he came up with Byron Bannister. Oh, Lord, she loved the Byron part, and thought the Bannister surname appropriate as she so enjoyed to slide on him. Dame Clare was a helpful entree into the theatrical world, but Byron had his sights set on something more than Bertolt Brecht and uh, backstage buggery. He thought of the old wheeze about the man who walks into an agent's office with a dog. What does he do? He talks. Let me hear. The dog jumps up on a chair and begins to declaim, 
Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, with proper gestures and emotion. That's wonderful, says the agent. I'll book him as Hamlet at the National. The dog looks at the agent and says, Actually, I'd rather direct. Byron also wished to direct, and got his chance with the help of a few well-placed friends. He made a series of commercials and music videos, which, while not ground-breaking nor world-shaking, were competent, and secured a post as second-unit director of a cheapo slasher flick. When a falling light clocked the director, he stepped in for the remainder of the shoot, thereby saving the producers a ton of money and putting a good smell on his name. Like all directors, Byron loved the DVD format and its ability to present an alternative and, of course, longer version of the opus than was screened in movie palaces. Lost scenes, now no longer lost, and melted into guitar picks or deteriorated into fire hazards, regularly appeared as director's cut footage or alternative takes in the form of zeros and ones. Whole subplots and characters that had been excised could be magically restored, presented to the home viewing audience and not end on the cutting room floor. Of course, such performances, no matter how worthy, were not eligible for honors at the myriad award ceremonies, and the honorees could not progress down a red carpet to field questions from a series of interviewers just one step up from mouth-breathing imbeciles. Byron Bannister, formerly Polypopolis, was on location filming Chop Shop when at three in the morning in Vancouver he woke, not worrying what his most recent HIV test might show, but with a grand idea. He reached for his global phone and called some of the movers and shakers in his field to present an idea for a new award show a brainchild of the Directors Guild, the Cutties. Three, Boychik. Eleven, number seven. Trafe trifecta, Boychik? Yeah, make the glass milk low fat, okay? I gotta keep my goyish figure. A skin of a rink like you, vey is mere. Next week it'll be alpine lace on right crisp and Bubba Esther adjusted her house dress and waddled off to the kitchen. Katz Deli was an L.A. institution, an aggressively non-kosher joint. It catered to goys, gays, plus apostate Jews, and made the best lobster salad in town. First appearing as an almost sick joke in the wake of Mel Gibson's Aramaic, masochistic, messianic Michigas, the high-quality treferie drew a knowledgeable clientele who demanded the best in pork products and shellfish dishes in an atmosphere redolent of Tante Sadie's Mishpucha, a short-lived program that had been aired opposite the Goldbergs in the early 50s. The waitresses, all from William Morris, possessed perfection in dress, makeup, and accent that could only be envied and copied by producers all over town. Albert drummed his fingers on the table, looked up, and saw himself staring back from a mirror. Woody Allen, if he had come from County Mayo. Red hair, freckles, and a snub nose not to speak of a long upper lip, the very cartoon picture of a stage Irishman, except 
no one was apt to let him on the stage or before a camera until recently. The part was well written, and when his agent sent him other than voiceover or an animated feature, his hair stood on end. He read for the part, and the casting director did not stare in disbelief. That voice emerging from that face and that body. If only he could adjust it in some way and sound something like he appeared. Attempts at vocal alteration with the coach were not a success. Actually, the only time his voice did change was when he had laryngitis and his vocal tone deepened even more. He sounded like a bass in a Russian choir. His house at one point had been surrounded by amorous bullfrogs. Bubba Esther, at least that was embroidered on her house dress, put the ham on rye with cup of clem chowder and a glass milk before him. S.S. mein Kind, she urged, and hastened to berate Misha Barton for not finishing her Serrano and Manchego melt. Albert Coffin stared at the subpoena he had been served for breakfast and read again the case with the cease and desist part with its implication for all his work of the past. It wasn't his fault. God had given him the voice. In some way, his vocal passages, larynx, and sinuses produced the instrument he used to make a living. It it wasn't an impersonation. It was the voice of Albert Coffin ever since he grew pubes and started goggling at girls. He looked at his watch. The bastard was late. Both bastards were late. He picked up his spoon and put it down again. Appetite for Blanchet. It had not really been there when he ordered, and looking at the official document, it had not only fled, but it was replaced by nausea. The Harris brothers would probably come together. After all, they shared a suite, one an agent and the other a lawyer. The Harris agencies took him on when no one in town would touch him. Of course, he had not helped his cause by attempting stand-up. His stage name seemed to incense the audience. Juo Marx. The tone was all wrong. And claiming to be a lost Marx brother and calling his act a revolution in comedy. The Holocaust material was poorly received, although Mel sent a nice note. And then again, that voice, that damned voice that provided an income and condemned him forever to be hawking products or playing animated folk. He looked at the subpoena again. Fucking estate of Gregory Peck, he muttered. Four. Brooks. A cineast's dream girl. All right. Everybody's dream girl. Male, female, gay and straight and iconic with that helmet of black hair and those eyes staring out of the silent screen. The producers attempted to induce today's ladies into taking the part. They had, after all, the temerity to impersonate Kate and Lana, Ava, and even Marilyn. There were a few nibbles, but the part was small, with minimal dialogue, and the pay was commensurate, so interest was lacking. They started to look at photos, first hundreds and then thousands, or it seemed. 
They were at the point of either cutting the scene or committing movie magic and somehow digitally enhancing the original footage and insetting it into the new project when a third-level assistant came running in with a website address and showed them a story. Arrested for causing a massive pileup on a busy secondary highway intersection in Kansas, it was supposed to be a sorority initiation. Instead of a high noon moon, knowing which of her features were especially admired, she dropped her top. Arrest followed, but not before several camera phones snapped and the resultant pictures downloaded to the web. She covered up by the time the pictures were taken, but the face was clearly seen. They photoshopped the hair onto her short, blonde curls, and it was close, very close. If only she had that lively presence. They stared at her name, and then they shuddered. They would give her a new one if she were used. An emissary was sent to sound her out. It would only be a small part of a much larger project. The face of the Weimar Republic in politics, economics, and art. The twenties dancing furiously to forget the prior decade and the extinction of a generation. And she would be part of it all, heedless, rushing toward the crash and the Nazis. They did a screen test and found she could smile, frown, and wave at the camera. Otherwise, she was the anti-Dooza. When she sensed she was losing their interest, she dropped her top. She received a first-class ticket on Lufthansa and was put up at the Four Seasons. When it came time for her bit, she was put with a Pabst look-alike, and they rolled. And they rolled. And they rolled. Finally, they rolled, and she dropped her top. Print that, said the director. Five. Breakfast. Papers here. You want the usual? Sure. So you broke down and started getting it delivered again? You didn't hold that grudge long. What has it been, two months? Their daughter, Melisande, married two months before, and Seymour and Bitsy thought, with their backgrounds. They had a good shot of getting Mel and Sam's announcement in the style section, but it was a no-go. Seymour was unusually pissed about it and vowed not to have that rag touch his doormat again, especially after he noticed the quota of rainbow relationships had exceeded their usual weekly average by a substantial margin. One such splicing was celebrated by a congregation which in the past rejected a proposed pizza of Bitsy's. Seymour was invited to a Friday night service there and agreed after some calm consideration that his wife's stark Holocaust memorial did not fit the West Hollywood vibe of the place, which was nicknamed in some circles Temple Benevenuta. Maybe if we sent a picture of Mel on a horse, he grumbled, that at least would have been a first. Bitsy patted him on his bald spot and kissed it good morning as he sat and separated the sections, dumping the ads but saving the rest. She handed him a steaming mug of joe from the vac pot, which he knew well enough to drink straight off and not let it sit around. Coffee lost most of its aromatics in a few minutes, and as Anatole France said of smokes, 
A Cuban corona turns into a stogie in the last inch. Of course, he said it in French. It sounded better in French. Drink it up, Bitsy insisted. She lived on coffee when she worked. She told him Balzac did the same, downing pots of the black stuff and writing furiously to keep ahead of his creditors. Her minor had been French literature. He rose and walked to the kitchen, where she had already begun his breakfast. When she received her Brookhaven, the money that went with it, she devoted in part to modernizing the kitchen, which let them cook in tandem without getting in each other's way. Egg sardou, he said, when he saw she had a pan of slightly simmering water on the stove and the bottle of vinegar was out. He began her preparation. So does schnitzel Holstein, she said to him, and took a slice of bread and, trimming the crust, browned it in a non-stick pan with a scant tablespoon of olive oil, put a poached egg on the bread, strew it with a few capers, and crossed anchovy fillets on the yolk. Meantime, he took two artichoke bottoms out of the fridge, warmed some frozen creamed spinach in the microwave, and spooned it over the hearts, then topped each with a poached egg and a spoonful of pre-prepared hollandaise. They walked to the breakfast table and placed their offerings in front of each other. Scrabbling claws on the tiles from the other side of the house, Lucky rushed in and was ushered out the back door for a pea and more. She then scratched to come back and was offered her kibble, which, of course, she ignored in the presence of people food on a table just out of her sight lines. She grinned toothily at them both. Hope does spring eternal in every doggy breast. How's the pseudo? Perfect. The sardou? Eh, better than his dramas. They met in a freak summer storm. High winds threatened to blow off the cardboard portfolio she was carrying and her with it. He shouted for the cabbie to stop and, jumping out, offered to ride share with her. Okay, as long as I pay half. I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm a cheapskate, he grinned. They settled into the seat, the large container in front of them. She looked at him coolly, with eyes, he noticed, that were a bit too large, and their color, violet. She thought he was endearingly lumpy-looking, the forehead a bit bossed, and the nose a little bulbous, but he had a fine mouth and looked at her with such obvious admiration that he need not say anything to be flattering. When she reached her goal, he got out with her offering to carry the portfolio through the still raging wind to the gallery. She hesitated and then, nearly blown off her feet, accepted. I'm Seymour Weintraub. Elizabeth Blaney, she said, over the latest gust of wind, and stuck out her hand. They shook. He felt a current pass between them and realized that love at first sight was apparently not a myth. 6. Barristers Papa Polyp had a peasant's distrust of lawyers. The legends of evil magistrates and courts went back in his family centuries, eons, geologic eras. His great aunt spat when pronouncing the name of King Minos who, she said, corrupted a judge 
and took the family farm to build his palace at Knossos. She also implied that he stole their minotaur. Mr. Polyp put on retainer a law firm when a gypsy clan moved to the area and began a scam directed at his establishments. One of the number would enter a shop, order, and then, when beginning to eat, apparent choke, apparently choked on a bone, which they would then remove from their throat, hollering loudly for compensation. After his barristers made their presence known, the gypsies moved on, but he was stuck with paying a monthly fee to the hired guns who had to do nothing for their money. If they would only come down and bust tables or sweep up, he would not complain so much. However, they never did. Papa's fund of English, despite his decade-long British sojourn, was another problem. When Byron informed his dad that he intended to matriculate in Cambridge, his father suggested that when his boy did, he be careful to use protection. They may look clean, began Mr. Pollock, unknowingly quoting the text of a World War II poster. Byron was immersed in the editing of his most recent opus, one he need not wear a waterproof to direct. There had not been so much as one blood splatter on the lens. As a reward for being under budget and underpaid for Chop Shop 2, The Revenge of Hatchet Harry, Byron was green-lighted on a romantic comedy, a metier which he felt the years since the reconstruction of his face prepared him. The script had been in his duffel when he was in school, in his backpack during a wander through the mother country, and more recently toted around in a set of Louis Vuitton luggage, reread, revised, expanded, polished, and played with so much he began to think of it as his penis. In, in a way it was. A uh, screenplay a clef of his formative years, it was actually good, and the task of filming it gave him more joy than any lover, male or female. He particularly was tickled when he found Albert Coffin to assay the role of blind date number three. That skinny little fellow with the imposing voice, the humor of the phone conversations prior to meeting at a coffee shop, the different hunks the hero imagines his phone date would be, and then the meeting with the surprise of that unimpressive form. And switcheroo. He falls for the little twerp and gets dumped by the guy. It made the whole center of the film. He expanded the part, and Coffin looked teary each time he was handed additional dialogue. Byron changed the third act, too, and hired another actress with the same coloration and physical characteristics as Coffin, except, of course, for the voice. And the punchline at the end? He has her smoke to deepen her voice. That paid off in financing the picture, too. He loved the producing credit given to Mo. A few additional location scenes filled, and he had a rough cut. It was only seven minutes more than he wanted. He submitted it to Sundance, and bingo, accepted. He was, as usual, under budget. He knew that more than artistry, his producers valued thrift. That meant the craft table would be simple, and actors with big egos and bigger salaries went unhired. He liked actors with the smell of desperation about them, ones who felt that if they didn't get a part, it would be back to the rendering plant 
or the blacking factory. Coffin had been like that, in a way, though he could always make a living with those voiceovers. Damned if he didn't sound like Peck, that deep, dry voice. He had seen the man stand up, and it was painful. Byron closed his eyes, listened to the voice, and tried not to hear the words. Then he looked as the man raced stage left just before a fusillade of glassware struck the faux brick background. If Albert ever tried that act again, the drinks should be served in paper cups like at the ballpark. Feeling expansive, he invited Donna and her assistant to Rustam's for an early dinner and beat the foodies who made Persian fare the thing that month. They just settled on their pillows and washed their hands in rose water when his cell signaled and he looked at the identification. The Harris Agency. He had to think for a moment to remember whom. Oh, yes, the small timers that represented Coffin. They could wait. A few minutes later, Suvarti Hamed, line producer. Fuck him. They were plenty under budget, enough for SH to do creative bookkeeping and steal a sum to flash into the Cayman's account everybody knew he fed. A few minutes after him, another call. This one was from Mo. This one he had better answer pronto. 7. Butchery Butchery! He's the very center of the film. Reshooting puts us over budget and we're precisely on budget. He thought of the monies that S.H. had stolen. Put in a different voice, said the man from Mo. Read the fucking contract, snapped Byron. For once, not amused by his special backers. We hired him and his voice, and we have to use both or neither. We use the film as shot, or we cut him out. So cut him out. Easy for you to say. That shrimp made the center of the film work and set up the joke at the end. In addition, it humanizes the hero when he gets dumped. He's not just a serial tail chaser anymore. He gets hurt, and the audience empathizes. You want to keep this in the can? Okay, but you lose a significant investment. Get me a million more, I'll get a different actor, reshoot, and we still can get this to Sundance. After all, it's only seven minutes, but they're vital. This is what you're going to do, boy genius. You use some of those background shots of the city, and you have a voiceover about this shrimp with a big voice. You don't show it, you talk about it. You describe the guy. I know it's the reverse of what you artists bullshit about, show not tell, but for a couple of thousand, you can tell not show and save a million for us. If you don't like it, you won't see any of the picture released. Besides, shit, when the suit blows over, you can stick the cuts back into the director's version on a DVD. That's what you guys like to do anyhow, right? Byron thought about it and remembered the cutties. It was a shoe-in. It was perfect. Okay, I don't want to be an obstructionist. We'll do it your way. Eight. Blonde, beauty, beholder. She was corn-fed. That's why she was so delicious. Just like cows, she'd been finished on corn near the family feedlot in Kansas. Unfortunately, the corn had settled. She was two girls. 
on top slender, with two perfect, gorgeous breasts and nipples to die for. Below the waist, a big butt. Her face ethereal, her breasts delectable, but her bottom, well, some might call it uh, bootylicious. In Brazil, she would be a shoe-in for the Queen of the May, or more likely Carnival. Problem was that in certain Caucasian circles, men preferred a boyish figure with unaccountably oversized boobs. It helped support the plastic surgeons, God knows. The publicity shots would be of her upper body, the filmiest of coverings for that lovely upper torso, and of course wearing the black wig, her eyes mascaraed in a retro way, vampish. There was obviously the reason that she hadn't mooned traffic. The drivers in Kansas would probably have driven faster to get away and not break to get a look. Still, her bottom would be admired south of the equator, and it was south of her equator that he surreptitiously shot, getting several admirable angles, including a natural, unshaven, blonde bush that would be worshipped in places where, as Byron, the Lord, not the film director, wrote, the climate's sultry. He made private arrangements for their sale far from the flesh pots of Europe or the feedlots of America. Well, that's the first part of Only Small Actors. This is Coffee Dave. That's K-A-W-F-E-E-D-A-V-E. You can reach me at coffeedave at yahoo.com if you wish to comment on this story. Next time, part two of Only Small Actors. And a very good evening to you.